Welcome to the RSP Remix. With over 300 episodes in our archive, the Religious Studies Project is an amazing open access resource. We wanted a way to focus attention on many of the repeated themes and the recurring questions that we see in our interviews. I'm Dave McConaughey, and today we're discussing the issue of fieldwork. Over the last few seasons, we've been fortunate to speak with a number of scholars who were candid about the ways in which their research and the research questions they were pursuing have been shaped by their fieldwork. For scholars who enter into fieldwork using ethnographic or sociological methods, one of the challenges can be that we don't really know what the project is going to be like when the rubber meets the road, when you're actually in the trenches, when you're doing the work. Today's episode features a number of clips from past interviews speaking about the challenges of being in the field doing research and some of the impacts that has on the research questions that we pursue. If you're a teacher, this is a great opportunity to start a discussion about the relationship between the questions that drive us as scholars and the realities of working in the field. The first interview we're going to be hearing from today is Brianne Fallon's interview in 2021 with Christopher Cotter, one of the founders of the RSP, about the way in which his data collection for his book, The Critical Study of Non-Religion, operated. Let's listen in. And then thirdly, I was working with Kim Knott. Kim Knott um, is perhaps best known for her book on the this called the, the location of religion a spatial analysis although she's done a lot of work in hinduism and on security threats and other things um but she was quite rooted in an ethnographic approach um, looking at specific localities and at the time i was grappling around for i want to look at discursive data and i want to prioritize non-elite social actors but how do i justify bounding the data like you you need to have a sort of organizing frame for your research you can't just go in and say i'm going to speak to a a bunch of people who will speak to me you need to have some sort of way of containing the data and locality emerged as a as a way to at least guarantee some sense of coherence to the body of discourse that I ended up studying so I, i landed on edinburgh's south side after thinking about various other um, diverse locations that I can maybe look at, which might have lots of discourse on religion happening. But I'd lived in the south side of Edinburgh um, for about 14 years by that point. Um, it's a, a small area in, in uh, the city of Edinburgh in Scotland with about 20, 20 to 25,000 inhabitants. On many scales, it would perhaps not be that diverse, but in terms of Scotland and Edinburgh in general, it is it's very diverse in terms of um, ethnicity and and religion related background and socioeconomic status and so on, but also um, of the high concentration of individuals who were taking the non box to the religion question on the 2011 census so it seemed like a a good fit um to investigate uh, religion related discourse and i'm wittering on but um i used the south side as my my means of soliciting interviews so i solicited people as south siders first rather than saying hey i want to speak to you about 
religion. Um, although I didn't, um, I didn't lie about that. It was on the poster and on all the things, but you know, the, the big thing was, are you a Southsider? Then I want to speak to you. Um, and I did about, um, 20, 25, um, interviews, um, for that project. I love the way that Dr. Cotter speaks about bounding the data and the way in which location and locality framed his question in a way that grouped his participants. It's unlikely, Chris speculates, that inviting participation on the issue of religion would have resulted in any research subjects. And this is a common refrain that we hear in the scholarship that we often cannot directly ask about the things that we'd like to know about. We need to establish rapport. We need to establish our credentials. We need to establish the way in which our questions fit into the world of the person to whom we're asking that question. We often overlook when we're talking about research about how much trust and how much care needs to go into those kinds of relationships. I think another scholar that spoke to us about the same issue that's worth listening to is Robin Veldman, who spoke to me in season 10 about the start of her research project on evangelical opposition to climate action, what she calls climate skepticism. Let's take a listen. I use this method of grounded theory where you're kind of constantly building theory and then testing it against the data that you encounter in the field. So, I mean, that really is how my inquiry progressed. I would say, you know, I was inspired by trying to understand the role of end time beliefs, but like you mentioned, probably even the more common perception that people have is just Christian anthropocentrism is a reason that evangelicals don't care about the environment. Um, so, but both of those narratives kind of work together. You know, if it's not the Christian story of the origins, then it must be the Christian story of the apocalypse. <laughs> One of those two must be driving apathy. And it's interesting because that kind of directs your attention towards evangelical religiosity, some feature of their theology or religious practice that is key in undermining environmental concern and away from you know, other really powerful things that are happening, which is what I ended up making more sense of or or finding to be more influential when I went into the field. Your sense of end times apathy as the theological source for climate skepticism did not pan out. Is that right? I mean, a lot of people have studied apocalypticism as it's lived in everyday life. And they find that it's difficult to sustain over time for long periods, like intense apocalypticism, the kind where you're selling your possessions, right? And not planning for the future. And so I knew that there was the possibility, in a sense, that this apocalypticism was not as powerful as people thought it was. On the other hand, I was also reading stuff, anthropological and sociological literature about climate change attitudes and understanding that these attitudes can be woven into people's everyday lives rather than simply, you know, I don't know, they're reading some IPCC assessment report or something like that. So I think both of those things were in the back of my mind that I wanted to probe beyond the notion that evangelicals attitudes about the environment are just theologically driven. I wanted to see how it looked in practice. And that's part of a trend within my subfield, the study of religion and ecology and nature 
where people have said, okay, we've looked at the theological resources within these traditions, and people have been arguing for decades about what they should teach their believers, essentially, or scholars have been mining the world's religions for their ecological insights, but what do they actually teach in practice? So I was also part of this empirical turn, or that's how I was trained within my subfield. I began my inquiry uh, timidly and with great fear, (laughs) calling up pastors and saying, hey, I have this project, I'd love to talk to you. And pretty early on, I realized I, I just shouldn't mention the environment. And so because it kind of predisposed the conversation to it. It's too tricky and controversial of an issue to bring up when you don't even know somebody. So I started saying, okay, I would love to talk to you about your, your teachings and your social ethics. And for those pastors that agreed, I went and I met with them and I interviewed them and, you know, I observed their layout (laughs) and, they became the the gatekeepers and and many of them agreed to help me set up focus groups where then I would spend time talking to people more in depth again about views about more generally we always started the conversation talking about christian views on social issues you know kind of in a more neutral as I understood it, direction. I didn't explicitly bring up end times till kind of later in the conversation. I sort of let it let it develop, but I did build in in a very sort of simplistic way into my study design this separation between premillennial Christians and amillennial Christians. And as an outsider to the evangelical community and somebody who did not have, you know, seminary training or advanced theological training at all, it took me a long time to understand these teachings and why they mattered because they matter in a social way. They kind of correspond to social divisions within evangelicalism, but they, they also of course matter for theological reasons. And for a long time, when I went in, when I began my research, I I thought of amillennialism as this neutral position. I thought of it as like, kind of like a holder, a blank kind of non, non non-millennialism, I guess I would say. At some point in my research, I realized that that was not a really an adequate explanation. Um, I had to make sense of the fact that, of course, my for- informants, the people that I spoke with, didn't think about things in the same way that theologians do, or you know, people who are trained in seminary. So that was one division. Um, but then also just the the way that people would talk about end time beliefs and amillennialism was not as I basically had to had to let go of the theological categories that, that I walked in with and realized that that's just not how it works on the ground. And that's, um, you know, as much as, you know, people who are trying to educate Christ, Christians would like it to be, it, it wasn't for the purposes of understanding, particularly climate change, it wasn't the relevant criteria. And so that's where I, I started uh, noticing, okay, well, some people are like, they light up when we start talking about the end times, they love it. They're super into it. And it's something I recognized because I had studied environmentalists and environmental apocalypticism. And I know that feeling myself, that you can see a beautiful potential in the apocalypse. And it's very strange because the apocalypse, and it's now when I think back on it, I'm kind of horrified that I ever had that view. But I, I do think it's very possible to to think that there's things are terrible now, but there's going to be a transition and they're going to get much better. So I noticed, you know, that some people were just really quick to jump on that topic and they were happy to say, or it was, it was pretty simple for them to be like, oh yeah, climate change is just another one of those signs. 
that, that, that the Lord is coming back and, you know, all of these bad things that we see now are going to be reversed. But they were kind of a minority within the community and almost everybody else had this, com- we're like, hold on there. <laughs> In fact, you know, the, you know, we don't know the day and the hour, um, as Christians, we're called to, you know, live in this world and not get caught up in that kind of end times fervor. So I saw through my research and had to come to terms with the fact that the theological categories didn't really map onto the social reality that I was encountering. And so I just, you know, (laughs) as a good scholar, just decided to create my own terms to kind of better capture what i was seeing which you know ended up being hot millennialism and cool millennialism dr feldman admits that a direct approach didn't allow her the access that she needed to the information her subject had she had to approach it from the side and for both dr cotter and dr feldman relationships had to be established first before their interlocutors would feel comfortable enough to explore the research questions that were driving their scholarship. For Cotter's non-religious subjects, it was the pride and the shared experience of living in a particular place. For Veltman, it was a realization that the scholarly framing of climate skepticism didn't match her subject's experiences. For many experienced scholars, these are routine. They'd say, of course rapport is necessary. Of course our academic models at the outset will fail to be rigorous enough when they find the reality of the field. But access itself is often a methodological issue. When I spoke to Spencer Dew about his research project on the followers of noble Drew Ali, the Aliites, he had this to say. The Aliites placing citizenship as the, as the center point of their understanding of, of what it means to be American, what it means to be Moorish, uh, what it means uh, to be, um, uh, to understand the sovereignty of, of, their, of their own person and their configuration. I, I'm just continually amazed at the, at the layers that, that are there when when you first came to the project did you did you expect that that something you know that seems as straightforward as citizenship is salvation did you did you expect all those layers to 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 follow along behind it oh gee no <laughs> I, I mean, look the 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 story of how I first came to this project is that the, the the week that I got my PhD, I started uh, what became six summers worth of adjunct teaching for one of the Chicago Police Department BA programs, right? So working working cops, and in like two cases, fire firefighters, um, working cops could, uh, at the end of their shift, come to the police academy and do night classes to work for a BA, uh, which at the time I think was required for certain promotion within the department. Um, and then then there was a, a, a graduate MBA program, which is useful if you want to do something after being a cop, um, which was always foremost, I think, in the in the students' minds. Uh, so so so. Long story short, I was introduced to the Moorish Science Temple of America community through my students that first summer teaching mm. Chicago cops, and I was introduced to them very much in the model of bad religion, uh, mm. criminalized religion, 
uh, uh, right? These are these are these are problematic folk who um, make false claims about their their rights, right? They 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 speak they speak legalese in order to um, accomplish certain selfish arguments. Let's say that that sounds a little bit cynical. I should also say I should also say police always encounter sort of uh, right. P- police don't spend a lot of time encountering. Um, religious communities that are invested in good citizenship let's say yeah right so so they were constructing their narrative off of their own policing experiences which are you know what, what whatever they are i think they also had um some very specific uh biases and i think um very importantly i can give a shout out to another book i've been um thinking about uh lately uh garrett felber's uh those who know don't say um mm. from unc press which is uh, I, I i don't know when this will be aired but unc press just made it free online because uh professor felber was just fired from old miss for his his, right. his his um political commitments anyway that book is a fantastic book and one of those one of the things that that book does best is it, it shows that that folk who are police and prison officials as well as policymakers are getting their ideas about religion and whether it's good and bad from specific sources. One of the sources he focuses on is the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, that's one of the sources I focus on in my book as well. And it, 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 when I was teaching Chicago police, um, my students would often come up and give me dog-eared copies of the Southern Poverty Law Center intelligence report, their glossy magazine, which laid out, you know, these religious movements are bad. These religious movements are criminals. Um, and, and, and that's, uh, that's an important thing for us to wrestle with in religious studies. So, so that was a long-winded answer to your question. But yes, that's how I was introduced to the movement. So no, I didn't, I didn't expect there to be any of this sort of depth. And I think I, I, I pursued it with a, um, yeah, with a profound naivete. I love Dr. Dew's phrase, profound naivete. It's jarring in its honesty, but it really speaks to me about the ways in which scholars are constantly flirting with the depths of our own ignorance. It's our curiosity that encourages us to ask, why is the thing this way? Or how should we understand this action? Dew's forged connection with police officers as students in his own classes led him to intimately understand their frequent use of good and bad religion. This in turn led him to understand the ways in which the Aliites were consciously and openly subverting the systematized racism of the police and the law. Long ago in graduate school, I was told, as I'm sure many of our listeners may have been too, that one of my duties as a scholar, was to know what I didn't know, and that the skill of scholarship is in part about recognizing the limits of our own knowledge and experiences. The problem of access is a recurring theme. Let's listen in to Elizabeth Perez speaking to Savannah Fimver last November about the closed religious elements of Lukumi. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about the distinction that you draw specifically between micro practices and macro practices. And why is this distinction, um, do you think, like important for understanding uh, Lukumi as it's practiced in the community that you observed? So one thing that I would want to start out by saying is that um, I pick up the term micro practices from Michel Foucault. Um, and, and for me to just 
um, you know, disavow coinage because um, that that is a term that is associated with the book. But I, I don't want to seem to be taking uh, credit where it's not due. Um, but for me, the distinction had to do with, um, in a way, reflecting back on the classic work that I had read on ritual as a graduate student. And here I have to place myself at the University of Chicago um, and the History of Religions program and thinking about classic works on rites of passage, um, ritual, for example, as drama and thinking about uh, the stage of ritual, the adoption of roles that religious actors take on and so forth. Um, I discuss in the book, there's an anecdote um, where I describe sitting in the kitchen, really waiting for um, rituals to begin because I thought I was here in the kitchen doing nothing, quote unquote, um, when I'd be peeling potatoes or when I'd be frying plantains at the stove because my idea of what field work would be as a graduate student was that I would ask about um, what rituals had gone on that I could not see. Um, this is a closed religion. This is a religion in which um, many uh, of the, the most sacred rituals are not observable by people who are not initiated. Um, and so my only access to them, I thought, would be, well, through interview, um, and so here I was doing doing work that I didn't think of uh, as being significant ritually. And it was only over time when I noticed the training that went into cooking and the mentorship that took place in the kitchen where I thought to myself, you know, this is sort of analogous to a behind the scenes um, of a play. And everyone thinks that... Um, you know, what happens, the transformative action that takes place on the stage is the most significant um, interaction that is taking place. But I could see from my vantage point um, that this is where people were being trained to carry on the tradition. Um, because, it, I, I mean, and, and it is possible that it is different in other traditions, although the more I read, the more I realized that micro practices in other religious traditions are also uh, much more consequential than they've been given credit for. So um, I did start to see this distinction between the macro practices um, that were either more public, for example, drum rituals that, um, you know, do tend to have a lot of people with different levels of seniority attend, um, even people who are not affiliated with this, those communities that put on the drum rituals for the Orishas. Um, other macro practices you might think of um, are rites of passage, rites of consecration. And these were the ones about, about which books had been written. Um, so opening up so many of these books that had been published, let's say in the 1990s or the early 2000s with Santeria in the title, um, they they revolved around these macro practices and I didn't find in them the micro practices that I was engaged in. Um, and so I felt that gave a skewed idea of what these religions really um, offered in terms, not only of the, the field of religious studies, but to the ordinary practitioner um, because there's, there's no way that um, one is going to, um, be welcomed into certain macro practice rituals without uh, the proper uh, initiatory um, 
seal of approval, let's say, the, the proper um, ascension to seniority. And so people are going to walk into that house of worship and they're going to be peeling potatoes and they're going to be flying, frying plantains. Um, and I felt like it was, it was important for me to make that distinction analytically um, to try to explain the normative um, conditions, um, you know, under which micro practices have endured. Um, and, and also to try to make the statement that, um, it, it's important for scholars to look at, um, the little things that are happening, the idle chit chat that's taking place, um, the, the small gestures that people make, whether they're walking or standing, um, that, you know, generally just get consigned to kind of not even the footnotes. Maybe they, they remain in the field notes because they are not what um, people are encouraged to analyze in the main text. The importance of idle chit chat was also something that I heard when I spoke with Alyssa Maldonado Estrada about her fieldwork with Catholics in Brooklyn. Let's listen into that. So I think my book does a new thing in approaching the devotional lives of Catholic men and trying to see what masculinity has to do with that and how certain devotional practices are masculinized. And then I think the other thing I'm doing is, I don't know, doing the not so serious study of devotion and trying to see how certain practices come to matter to Catholics and how certain practices come to be charged as devotional or to be charged with certain meaning. So this meant for me, I had to, I had to get rid of a lot of assumptions about what religious practice looks like in order to dwell with men in their spaces and not only listen to what they were saying, but to see what they were doing with their hands and to see the kind of skills they felt like they could offer to the saints, the skills they could offer to their church, and try to understand how that was devotion too, even if it doesn't look like seriousness and tenderness all the time. I think this is a great opportunity to talk about how you found all of these things out. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be an ethnographer in these spaces? Yeah. So I love, I love this question. I love talking about ethnographic methods. So, I mean, one of the main things that's going on here is that I'm a woman, I'm not Italian American, I'm Puerto Rican. And I wrote a book about Italian American masculinity. So obviously to do this work, I was crossing lots of gender and ethnic boundaries. Luckily, this is a community that has been studied by other scholars, largely by Italian-American men. So there have been dissertations, there have been articles, there have been, you know, book chapters. They know what it means to be kind of the object of the scholarly gaze, which I think made my presence in the beginning, like, understandable and palatable. But one of the things that is so important in this community is labor and effort. Every person has to show that they are putting in the work to make the feast happen. So if I was going to be an ethnographer and I wanted to kind of like sit there and be quiet, take notes, you know, have, have a pencil and paper, that, that wasn't going to work. In my first year of field work, this was kind of scene setting, trust building. So much about ethnography is creating deep relationships and friendships and bonds of trust. 
And so in that first year I did, you know, I went, I went to all the meetings. I worked in the parish feast shrine. I walked on all of the processions. I got to see some of the inside things about the homosocial spaces and what men are really doing behind the scenes, but I didn't get to see it all. So it was that second year that I got interested in how men construct the Giglio. Men started telling me lots of stories about their time, you know, working nights and weekends in the basement. Lots of men have Giglio tattoos. And so they would talk instead, you know, they wouldn't tell me about their belief in the saints or anything like that. They would tell me, I got this tattoo to commemorate my first time working in the basement building a Giglio. So I was like, okay, I have to see this space. So I asked around, I was like, Hey, can I, can I see what you guys do down here in the basement? And they were, they were open to it. So I get to the basement and the basement is full of refuse, like all the nativity scene, um, statues are down there kind of old and broken statues, statues in all kind of states of disrepair and, um, nudity. And then it's also kind of like a workshop. So power tools, paint cans, it's this like messy subterranean space. And one thing I think it, I think is really cool about this space is that we see devotional objects under construction and we see men and masculinity under construction. So I think as men are down in the basement fabricating the Giglio, they're also building and enacting a certain sort of masculinity that's about craft and creativity, that's about physical manual labor practices, and that's about dedication to the parish and tradition above all. So when I got to the basement that year, for some reason, there had been an absence of volunteers. There were some, you know, arguments going on and there were just not enough young men to paint the Giglio. So one of the guys asked me, he was like, do you, do you know how to paint? Do you know how to mix colors? And I told him, I was like, yeah, you know, I've taken art classes. I know my way around um, a palette. I know how to mix some colors. And that was kind of the beginning of me working in the basement, painting the saints on the Giglio for years. It was only through my own labor, through matching the devotional labor of the men, through having certain artistic skills, through learning how to demonstrate my own dedication and my own work, that I was able to get access to this behind the scenes space. This also opened up other behind the scenes spaces. So one of the one of the main ones I talk about in the book is the money room. What happens during this feast is like, yes, they walk on processions, they lift the Giglio. But one of the main goals is to raise money for this parish. This parish is in a super gentrified, the trendiest neighborhood in Brooklyn. Lots of Catholic parishes have closed. They've been, you know, deconsecrated and sold as condos. And this church, OLMC, or Lady Mount Carmel, is kind of the holdout. They are still there. Um, and they are kind of vibrant and surviving. And so money really matters in this community. So one of the things the feast is very important for is raising money. All of that money needs to be accounted for. And this happens in a kind of backstage room called the money room. 
So my work in the basement, kind of painting saints, making certain iconographic choices, making sure things on the Giglio were legible as St. Rita or the Sacred Heart of Jesus. That opened up, I don't know, my trust. Like it opened up other people trusting me enough to also let me count tens of thousands of dollars with them. Many of these were largely all male spaces, but I was able to access them in ways that were surprising to me, like that there was flexibility in that. Um, I think I was able to have, I think I was able to enact certain masculine skills and know-how that they were looking for. And in seeing what spaces were open to me and in seeing what what spaces and practices weren't, I was able to discern kind of the workings and constructions of masculinity in its more flexible registers and in its more rigid forms. The issue of settling into a research space, becoming part of the research space, how scholars adapt themselves and their research to becoming part of the community that they're investigating is a central issue for any student who would like to conduct ethnographic research. For a lot of graduate students, and perhaps this dates me somewhat, uh, the introduction is Karen McCarthy Brown's Mama Lola, but I think such experiences are widespread. Research changes us and changes the questions that we think are important. One of my favorite interviews begins with this topic. It's Candace Mixon's interview with Liz Bukar, author of Pious Fashion. Here's what Dr. Bukar said of how she came to study how Muslim women dress. To start, can you tell us what Pious Fashion is um, and what brought you to that topic? Yes, so uh, Pious Fashion is the word that I use in this book to describe clothing that is both religiously coded as Muslims, so trying to be, for women trying to be modest in a certain religious way, given their own interpretation, but also intentionally trying to be fashion forward or with the fashion trends. And it's actually not exactly a topic I came up with. It came out of conversations with the women that I'm actually Mm -hmm. talking to, right? It's really a subject-driven research. Like the focus groups I had, the interviews I had with women, that's what they wanted to talk about in terms of modest clothing. And so instead of calling it modest clothing, um, or instead of calling it just, it's not just headscarves, it's really this head-to-toe sort of look um, in these, th- these three locations. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the three locations, so your book relates to examples from Iran, Turkey, and Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of people out there, that might be sort of a random combination. A crazy, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> ones that don't immediately have um, commonalities. So I wondered if you could walk us through first just the choices for those three particular countries. Yeah, there's both a... The case studies both come out of my own sort of experience in these locations as, and there's also, but there's also like conceptual theoretical reason for it. So in terms of my personal experience, like you, my mm-hmm. initial research in grad school was based in Tehran, right? Mm-hmm. It's based in Iran. So my experience, even though my research wasn't about clothing or material culture in that way at that time, it was part mm-hmm. of my, my experience, if not my research. And I had this moment where I moved directly from Tehran to Istanbul in 2004 and having spent the summer covered suddenly uncovered on the streets of Istanbul. And that was, for me, that was the first time I actually cared about, it was interested in clothing rather in terms of what it did to someone's like character and culture, right? Because I felt really uncomfortable uncovered. Like I'm not Muslim, but still by doing that practice every day, I felt covered the intentional intention to becoming more modest, becoming more Muslim, but still by doing that every day in, in Iran, I had 
shifted what I thought was appropriate behavior for myself with men I didn't know, behavior in public, how I should dress. And so that was sort of an interesting moment for me. But it wasn't, I wasn't really interested in the question of fashion until I did other research in Indonesia. And I got there and I was like, oh my God, it looks so different here. And like, duh. But when I'm surprised <laughs> by things, that's yeah. the kind of the moment where I lean in a yeah. little bit. So like, of course it looks different there. And it didn't read to me as like modest in the way that it would yeah. in those other locations, I, um, particularly in Tehran or Istanbul, um, because of the local yeah. style cultures and the local politics and the local history of, of garb and um, women's clothing and women's dress. And, and so the three case studies kind of come out of my own sort of trajectory, moving through these different spaces, doing other research. But then when I sat down to write the book, I was like, oh, no, no, I'm going to stick with these case studies because we spend so much time, particularly, I think, in the U.S., thinking about the Gulf as the origin yeah. of, of all things, yeah. all things Islamic, much less yeah. clothing, right? And I'm like, oh, I mean, I just wanted to center that. Like, of course, you're going to include Indonesia. That's you know, the, yeah. the most populous nation and yeah. the world. And it was a great way to have these three case studies. They're all Muslim majority of the cities. Mm-hmm. That was sort of one yeah. baseline for me. Um, and they were all not part of sort of the, the Middle East, the Gulf, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's how those case studies sort of um, emerged. And then also showing the enormous diversity yeah. through those spaces. I mean, I'm really comparativist. So the only thing yeah. that really cuts through all my work that is similar is that I like to have many things on the table at once and find connections and differences. So I felt much more comfortable and much more could find more things or understand things more, more in depth when I could have more case studies. So I understood more what was going on in Tehran when I started thinking about what was happening in Georgia or what was happening in in Istanbul. So, yeah, it's interesting. I think we've had a similar um, trajectory. I haven't been to Indonesia, but I've spent a lot of time in Turkey and Iran doing my research and even just going back and forth from those two countries Packing is a nightmare, mm-hmm. trying to get yeah. all the right clothing that makes sense for traveling in very different places. And I'm sure you've had this experience too, where your students will often come to it with monolithic. And so I think something like this really helps them break apart those different cases and how different the fashion and style is in all those countries. Yeah. Um, I mean, so- I think in some ways it's, <sighs> do I think that, am I a little bit annoyed that we are still spending so much time in the conversation about women and Islam talking about clothing? Yes. Like I am also really annoyed by <laughs> yeah. that. Um, this is the second book I've written on this topic and this is not where my research started. Right. But I, it's partly in a response to the fact that people still don't understand it and non-Muslims fetishize it and over politicize it or, or, or under politicize it. They think it means more than it does or means less than it does. Mm-hmm. They just don't understand the context of when it's happening it's either a sign of women's oppression wholesale. They don't understand the choice involved or it's a sign of a words and creep of Islam. Oh, it's coming. Look, all the hijabis are coming. Mm-hmm. So it's partly, I think we keep talking about because there's still so much misunderstanding. The other thing that you just sort of raise is particularly for my students and for a non-Muslim audience, of which mm-hmm. I'm really interested in and I'm writing primarily for yeah. them. It's a, it's a good way into this, into thinking about different Muslim communities and Islam that doesn't like sort of start with texts, mm-hmm. right? Or political debates. I mean, I get into politics and consumption yeah. and, you know, but I also get to start with like religious practice that these women, there's not a chapter about the Quran in this book, yeah. right? And it was actually really hard for me. I've written another book and it has that chapter on the sacred yeah. text, right? I'm like, and I know that stuff. And I was like, I have to put that in there, yeah. but I don't have to put that in there because yeah. the women I'm talking to don't start with quoting to me yeah. the Quran. They jump right in with like, okay, so that's what, this is what it looks like here. And here are the debates that were happening. Mm-hmm. And this is the problems or here are the pressures we're feeling or here's how I style my head. They start right in 
with the decisions they're making every day. And you realize that that's where the negotiation of what accounts to be a good Muslim is happening. It's not happening over fights in the text. Like the women I was talking to, they all agree that particularly these women who are covered, they think that it is their religious duty. They believe it is a religious duty to cover. That's like a given. Yeah. So then the question is, what does that mean? Right. Um, and that is not a, that's not a textual debate, really. Yeah. It's an everyday practice debate. So it's a way into the religion that actually, right. once you move through, it's sort of like, no, it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that. Okay, it's diverse. You can then open it up and have a fuller conversation. Yeah. Either in this book, I'm trying to have a fuller conversation or in my students or in public scholarship, I'm trying right. to do about, you know, combating Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism in ways that's trying to meet my audience at a place that they can enter the conversation with me, I guess. Our final excerpt today comes from my interview with Dr. Christina Roche, who spoke directly about her experiences in the field, studying the connections between Brazilian and Australian Christians. As we, as we come to the end of our, our time today, I've, I want to end on a, a kind of a methodological note. I've noted a couple of times when you said that you, your information comes from interviewing or from um, direct uh, fieldwork uh, at these sites. Can you speak a little bit as an anthropologist about why ethnography and, and fieldwork is the right way uh, for you to figure out what's going on in these communities and, and um, to explain what kinds of things are valuable to them. Why, why is that the method that seems most appropriate here? I think it's the, it's the way of hearing their voices and, you know, humans are very logical. Uh, They can be very emotional and all this, but they are very logical as well. So if you dismiss any religious group or any group and say, oh, you know, they're lunatics, they're mad, and why would they do that? You don't, you're not paying attention. So the ways in which you can be with them and listen to them, but also have the experience in your body. So it's not only, ethnography is not about interviewing people. You interview people and mostly, as in any conversation, you meet somebody new, this person comes from the university, you don't have a university degree or you are at the university, but you feel like you want to please this person, to impress this person, right? So interviewing is very much about um, what, you know, how you, you people react to you as, as a, a social persona, you know, like being a university professor and all this. Now, when you are with people in, on a more daily basis, People start relaxing and being themselves and you start, you know, in there are chats and silences and things people say when they are relaxed that you don't get in interviews. But you also, as an ethnographer, you live the things that people are living in your own body. So you spend, you know, an hour and a half in the service, in the dark with the lights going and the music going and you understand what kinds of um, oral experiences, physical, visual experiences mm. you have. So you learn with your body. And I think that's very important. So that these two things, finding out the logic of, of this commitment to these churches or these spiritual movements, but also learning in your own body how, what people feel. So it's not only that you learn rationally, but you learn with the body. And, and I think, you know, this is very important and gives me an edge 
uh, on 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 how to to report and being very respectful of these people and how you report their logic. Today's dip into the archive revealed how frequently the topic of fieldwork and its impact on our research questions, how frequently appears in our interviews. For every scholar that wants to conduct ethnographic or embedded research, these are important tips and lessons from experienced scholars. Research changes you. Being in the field sharpens and shapes your research questions. And it's important to have a conversation about the way in which that will impact your research and how that's impacted the work of scholars whose research you're reading. If you'd like more episodes in the RSP remix and where we dive into the archives, please let us know on our social media. Thanks so much for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartasius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.